Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. When we talk about the China model today, the countries supposedly learning from it are clustered in Southeast Asia and Africa. But who was first to the game? The USSR and Gorbachev. In his book, The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, Tufts Fletcher School professor Chris Miller explores how Deng Xiaoping's example informed Soviet policy decisions in the 1980s. But of course, Gorbachev could not hold the Soviet Union together. So why did the USSR fall while the CCP was able to reform its economy? And what other lessons from post-Soviet Russia can we apply to China today? For those questions and more, Chris Miller, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Chris, how did you come across this research angle? Well, I started uh, several years ago working in the Soviet archives in Moscow, trying to understand the origins of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's reform efforts in the final years of the Soviet Union. And I was expecting to find Gorbachev and his aides and advisors looking either to the West Gorbachev came at the same time, for example, as Reagan, Thatcher, other free market economists uh, and reformers in um, in the Western world, or looking to Eastern Europe, countries like Hungary, uh, Yugoslavia, which had uh, created models of market socialism that mixed uh, capitalist and socialist methods. And certainly, you find many examples of Soviet economists, scholars, policymakers looking at these models, but I was also struck to find in the 1980s many examples of Soviet economists, Soviet academics, and also Soviet leaders like Gorbachev himself looking at China as a potential model. And of course, today we look at the Soviet Union and China as countries that have taken two very different paths in the years following 1989 and 1991. But before 1989, it turned out that there were many people in both countries that thought they shared a lot of similarities. Uh, so, so a few questions on, on your research process and uh, sourcing. So first off, you uh, you note in your book that, you know, the Politburo Minutes, which is a which plays a big part in um, in your sourcing, doesn't hasn't actually gotten a lot of attention attention by historians. So, I mean, this seems like the coolest stuff you could possibly read coming out of the Soviet Union. What um, uh, what's been going on in the past 30 years that stopped folks from uh, digging into this? Well, you know, there are, are Politburo uh, notes that are available for earlier periods, but historians have really only begun to dig into the 1980s. Uh, historians usually work at a one-generation lag to uh, the past. And so when I began my research on my dissertation, which became uh, this book, uh, historians really hadn't done that much uh, archival research into the late Soviet period. Um, in part, it was a belief that uh, it just wasn't possible to get good source materials on late Soviet politics. But I think more important than that uh, was a perception that it was just too soon to say anything new. And one of the things that I was struck by is not only that there's a lot of material available, um, but also that the, the first generation of accounts of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the accounts written by journalists at the time and the memoir literature, uh, really didn't have a, a particularly fresh or, in my view, accurate interpretation of, of what happened. And I thought looking back now 30 years later, it's possible to say something pretty substantially new about what went wrong in, in the late Soviet period and also uh, where the origins of, of those political changes came from. So how do these minutes compare uh, to the sorts of thing you'd see in the JFK or LBJ tapes? Well, they're pretty similar. Um, we have uh, – they're notes um, – that are compiled from three of Gorbachev's aides. Um, so they're not actually the formal minutes. They're, they're kind of the, the, the notes that arrived in Gorbachev's archives. So they only exist from 1985 to 1991. Uh, and they're not comprehensive. We have certain meetings, but not others. Um, but what they 
show us is who was saying what and what issues they were debating. And so they give a sort of inside view into the debates at the highest level of Soviet politics. You can say Gorbachev uh, raising questions, and you can see who among his Politburo colleagues were on which side of every given issue. And one of the things that I was uh, intrigued to find was the extent to which so many of the debates about economic policies were not only about um, about the problems the Soviet Union faced, but also about the different interest groups uh, that were affected by them. And as these interest groups debated and tried to advocate for their positions, they turned to foreign models uh, to justify the policies that they were advocating. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to that interest group point later. But first, let's do a brief economic history of the Soviet Union, starting with Stalin. So how did um, economic policy get decided uh, when he was in power? Well, under Stalin, the, the goal above all was industrialization um, from when Stalin consolidated power in the late 1920s all the way through the war and then through his death in 1953. His number one goal was to make the Soviet Union an industrial country. And so he put all of his energy towards making that happen. Uh, he devised a series of five-year plans that uh, organized Soviet economic policymaking, and uh, he punished uh, firm managers and bureaucrats who didn't meet the targets of those plans. And the, the plans had extraordinarily ambitious targets, which were often not met, but the change that happened was actually quite extraordinary. The Soviet Union went from being a basically agrarian country in the 1920s to one of the world's uh, leading industrial powers in the mid-1950s. Sure. No, this this deliver-or-you-die uh, dynamic is is an interesting one because basically what happened in the in the Chinese context, particularly with the Great Leap Forward, is people would just fake the numbers and or starve the people, uh, which wasn't necessarily uh, meeting the goals of you know rapid industrialization or improved agricultural performance. So was there anything different that Stalin was getting right? Was what he was trying to achieve just more uh, reasonable than what Mao was going for? Well, there certainly was a lot of faking of numbers and, and especially a lot of starving the people in the Stalin period, uh, both during the, the famous uh, famine that uh, accompanied collectivization in the late 1920s and early 1930s and again after the war. Um, but I think the, the Soviet Union, in contrast to, to China during the Great Leap Forward, um, was probably a bit more ready for industrialization. It, it was a slightly more advanced country if you look at literacy rates, per capita income estimates. Um, it also did have some industry that it inherited from its Tsarist predecessor. So it wasn't starting from nothing, um, but it did expand extraordinarily rapidly. The other thing that I think differentiates uh, Stalin's industrialization from the Great Leap Forward is the extent to which, although it was immensely violent, although it was uh, driven from the top, similarities with, with Mao, it was also very well organized um, in the sense that it was bureaucratized. Uh, there were people measuring and managing it. And so where the Great Leap Forward was marked in many ways just by revolutionary enthusiasm, the Stalinist uh, leap forward, so to speak, was a much more organized and bureaucratic process. And and do you think that came from the man himself or something about uh, Russian society? Where uh, where did where did this mindset come from? Well, if you look at where the two countries were in the in the the structure of their revolutions at the time, Stalin was already uh, sort of the second generation leader. Lenin had come first. Stalin had consolidated party power. He had a coherent party structure uh, by the late 1920s. And so when he dove into uh, collectivization, he was already recognized by everyone in the party as the dominant leader, and he already had a pretty strong organization to back him. Whereas when you look at Mao diving into the, cult, the, um, the Great Leap Forward, 
he had neither of those things. The revolution had just happened, and he was still jockeying for power with other party elites. And uh, it was far from obvious that he was going to be as dominant in the Chinese party as Stalin had already made himself. Sure. So let's now uh, jump a little bit forward to Brezhnev and this idea of stability of the cadres as something that was important both to the party and to the and to the development of the country. Yeah, the, the legacy of of Stalin's economic policies was on the one hand quite negative, which is that it resulted in mass famine, for example. It was quite a violent process. But there was, of course, a, a positive side too in the industrialization that happened, and that was very real. But as the Soviet Union won the war versus the Nazis, thanks to its industrialization, um, under Khrushchev and into Brezhnev, there was a, a shift away from industrialization for industrialization's sake and uh, a sense that the Soviet Union needed to provide consumer goods to satisfy the demands of society. And so the importance of industrialization declined over the course of the 1960s and 1970s. It didn't go away, but it became relatively less important. And that was accompanied by a political shift too, which is that the people that came to power after Stalin, especially during the 1970s, the Brezhnev era, uh, thought that Stalin overall had done a decent job managing the Soviet Union, the Soviet political system, but they didn't want to see what they would call the excesses return. And those excesses were above all the purges, uh, but not only the purges as experienced by your average Soviet citizen being shipped off to the gulag, but also the uh, the purges of the, the apparat, the, the Communist Party itself. And so one of Brezhnev's key political promises to the Soviet elite, to the Soviet Communist Party, was that he would have a more stable political system. It would be less about purges, less about rotations, and more about letting people uh, stay where they are or move up in an organized fashion. And this was immensely popular among the bureaucracy for reasons you can imagine, but it did have mm -hmm. a downside in that it took away one of the incentives that Stalin used to make sure people hit their targets. You know, it's not easy to find a silver lining for the Cultural Revolution, but your book did deliver one. The idea that blowing up the cadre links and, um, you know, have, not having state planning commissioners be in charge of agencies for 20 years ends up giving uh, a little bit more freedom, a little bit more wiggle room to Deng than the sort of operating space that Gorbachev was faced with. Yeah, there's an American political scientist who who I think influenced my understanding of the, the Cultural Revolution named Mansur Olson, who argued that when societies face a period of stability, they often have interest groups that solidify and then obstruct necessary change. And that's clearly what happened in the Soviet Union under the Khrushchev and Brezhnev periods. There was stability, but the stability created stagnation. And one of the uh, silver linings, as you say, of the Cultural Revolution is that it destabilized the Chinese Communist Party and made it possible for Deng to shake things up. And there's a lot of luck involved here. If you have destabilization at different times or destabilization followed by different economic policies, it obviously won't create results similar to Deng. So I, I wouldn't say that cultural revolutions will inevitably create economic growth um, by any by any stretch of the imagination. But certainly I mean, it, it was in touch this and case, go there for, for Deng, for sure. Well, indeed, indeed. Um, but, but it is, I think, in I don't know if you'd call it an irony of history, uh, but, but it is, I think, an interesting result of the Cultural Revolution that it did open space for Deng to try something new. Sure. So let's now turn to our leading man. Who is Gorbachev and how does he ascend to power? So Gorbachev came from an agricultural region of the Soviet Union. Um, his grandparents had suffered uh, immensely during the early decades of Soviet power. Um, they had gained land through the revolution and then lost it when Stalin collectivized farming. And so 
so he was someone who, from his earliest days, had sort of an ingrained skepticism, I think, of, of collectivized agriculture and a bit of skepticism, I would argue, of the Soviet economic project more generally. And this was a complicated emotion for him because he was also a great beneficiary of the Soviet system. He moved up very rapidly. He got a university education uh, and then ascended the party hierarchy you know, extraordinarily rapidly throughout his career. But he always had to balance, on the one hand, what he lived through in, in the countryside, watching his grandparents suffer under collectivization and the reality that he'd done quite well under Soviet socialism. In the 1980s, he was seen as a, a sort of young leader in a Soviet Communist Party that was uh, then governed by extraordinarily old leaders, not only Brezhnev, but Brezhnev's two successors, Andropov and Chernyenka, uh, were also old, not well, and unable to uh, shake up Soviet policy. And so when there was a need for a new leader in 1985, uh, the Soviet elite in general made a bet on Gorbachev, betting not that he would destroy the social system by any means, betting not even that he would really shake things up, but just hoping that a young face from the next generation could find some sort of way to reinvigorate Soviet socialism. Um, so what economically needed reinvigoration? When Gorbachev came to power, there had been a whole array of studies by Soviet economists to answer this exact question. And, and it was a matter of debate between different groups in Soviet intellectual life and, and the Soviet bureaucracy as to how to improve things. One school of thought was that all the Soviet Union needed was more investment in the right sectors, more investment in new technology, uh, more investment in new equipment for factories, and that as long as you were able to renovate uh, the Soviet industrial base, it could be begin producing uh, at the growth rates that it, the country had seen in the 1950s and 1960s. So that was, that was one school of thought. More investment was the answer. There was a second school of thought that was more politically challenging, which was that the country didn't simply need new investment. It needed a new mechanism for deciding how to invest. Uh, the argument here was that capital investment had become very inefficient, and all of the data that was collected by Soviet economists showed that this was true. The country was allocating capital to inefficient industries um, rather than to uh, more efficient industries. And so economists who were focusing on capital allocation argued that you needed some sort of new system of incentives uh, to find a way to increase the productivity of capital investment. And Incentives meant finding some way to move towards a, a sort of market mechanism, rewarding businesses that produced efficiently, punishing those that produced inefficiently. And this was complicated for two reasons. One, more obviously, ideologically, market mechanisms were not something that it was easy to promote in the Soviet system. But more importantly than that, in some ways, was that the enterprises, the, the big businesses that made up the Soviet economy, obviously had no incentive to transition to a system where they were judged based on performance rather than based on their political connections. And so they were actually the greatest opponents of this idea that you needed more efficient incentives uh, and more efficient investment mechanisms. Let's let's dive a little bit deeper into fiscal policy. So what was the what was the budget looking like, and what were the the options to um, to either cut spending or raise taxes? Well, when Gorbachev came to power, I mean, let me step back for a minute. The, the Soviet budget is always a little bit difficult to talk about um, because in a planned economy, the difference between budget and the economy overall is is conceptually not that clear. Sure. In, in a capitalist economy, we can talk about a government budget because we know that certain things are the government, other things are private sector. But where the government controls almost all economic life, at least in theory, everything is to a certain extent the budget. Um, was, was there a moment in studying this stuff where, where that finally clicked for you, this idea? 
you know, it, I think it's the, the hardest thing to wrap your head around is just how different uh, a, a planned economy is from, you know, what I was taught in intro to economics in, in college. Um, and on a regular basis, you have to check yourself and say, wait a minute, is, is that how it works in a system uh, like this? Uh, the irony is that many things work quite similarly. Uh, some things work quite differently. Yeah, Ju- Julian Gerwitz in his book, uh, where he looks at how Western economists impacted the Chinese system, he had this great quote um, where there was a translator on a boat um, who was helping, you know, these like uh, these like Ivy League economists trying to convey their ideas. And the translator broke down crying because there were so many new words and so many new concepts that she was just like pooped out and couldn't couldn't go on anymore. So yeah, big sort of like mind gap between the two systems from a from a structural standpoint, as well as just an intellectual wrapping your head around uh, these sorts of things standpoint. Absolutely. Yeah. And and so when I was looking at the, the Soviet budget data, what what comes out immediately is it's, you know, it's difficult to say with confidence whether the economy in aggregate was in the equivalent of a, a balanced budget situation uh, in uh, a capitalist economy. But what we can say with, with some confidence is that the economy wasn't highly disbalanced when Gorbachev came to power, or to the extent that it was disbalanced, it, those disbalances had been stable over time. In other words, there, there, there were existing shortages, but those shortages had been broadly stable over time from the 60s to 85. Um, there was some inflation, but that too had been broadly stable in kind of the the broadest brushstrokes. But things changed very, very drastically when Gorbachev came to power. Uh, And so you can really talk about an economic regime change between 1985 and, say, 1987 or 1988 into the second or third year of Gorbachev's time in office. And this fiscal regime change, I think, has really been underestimated in histories of, of what went wrong in the Soviet Union. But it's actually quite crucial because it shows that whatever went wrong in the Soviet Union it wasn't simply a matter of long-standing uh, inefficiencies. Sure. So let's go into these initial decisions that really got Gorbachev into a bind. Sure. So Gorbachev, as we talked about before, Gorbachev uh, was presented with two different schools of thought about what was going wrong in the Soviet economy. One about there was a lack of investment. The second was that there was a inefficiency in the investment process. And Gorbachev at first tried to tackle both of them. He promised more investment to the enterprises, to the industries, and he tried to shift towards an economic model that involved more incentives. Um, the, the challenge that he faced was that by promising more investment, he ran up a massive budget deficit, something like call it 10% of GDP by 1989. And this all happened before there were any real positive effects of the market-based incentive reforms he was pushing through. So the the stable, if inefficient, Soviet system that he inherited in 1985 had become by 1989 a very unstable and not much less an efficient system. Okay, so, so what were the policy changes that Gorbachev made which put strain on the system? Well, the, the biggest changes that put strain on the system were, were the budgetary changes, spending more. And, and Perestroika, his, his system of reforms, promised both that the Soviet Union would have what he called a scientific technical revolution, which meant basically keeping up with the West in terms of computers, in terms of new technology. And it promised that average Soviet citizens would begin to feel the results very quickly. So he had both a big surge of capital investment, which is quite visible in the data, and also increases in wages, which were intended to solidify his support among the population. 
but there was no increase in in tax revenue to fund either of these. And so the result was this budget deficit that ballooned over the course of his six years in office uh, and and began to create shortages and inflation. So so this big investment push, why didn't it deliver the growth that he hoped it would? Well, the investment push that materialized in 1985, 86, 87 uh, occurred along the old school lines. So it it wasn't using the the new mechanisms of capital allocation that Gorbachev was trying to create. And indeed, it, chronologically, it came a year or two before most of the market mechanisms that Gorbachev began pushing through. So this was a sort of Brezhnev-style investment push. And so there's no reason to really have expected it to have panned out any better than all of the Khrushchev or Brezhnev-era investment pushes materialized. It was really just about gaining support from the industries that Gorbachev then followed uh, by followed with a series of, of market reforms or incentive-based reforms that angered the industry. So it was it was part of a political negotiating process rather than anything that he or his economic advisors really believed would would bolster growth. Were they just too confident? What was the um, uh, what was the miscalculation there? Well, I think the the favorable or the charitable interpretation of Gorbachev is that it was a gamble that could have gone right but went wrong. A gamble that if he were to spend a lot buying support from the industries and the population and then implement pretty tough reforms that would be quite unpopular, he could hope that he'd get growth from reforms soon enough to start paying back the the spending boom that he'd begun his time in office with. And, And that didn't pan out. Now, there's a less charitable interpretation, which is that neither Gorbachev nor his advisors really realized the stakes of the gamble. Um... It's, it's difficult to be confident, but my sense is that there was a whole lot of economic expertise uh, among Gorbachev's advisors, and even Gorbachev himself, I think, was quite savvy in his understanding of what was at stake. Um, but he was in a very difficult position. There, there was no way to get reforms through without providing some sort of you know, throwing a bone to the industries, and, and the bone that he had to throw was a very expensive one, and he just didn't have the funds to pay for it. Let's fast forward a few years uh, when he realizes that things need to be pared back. So he has a few options. He can cut spending to industries, cut spending to the military, or raise taxes. So let's first maybe sketch out just what these industry lobbies were and how much power they had. Well, there were a number of big industries. Um, there was the the what the Soviets called the fuel energy complex, which is the oil and gas industries. Um, there was the military industrial complex, all of the factories that served the military. Uh, and then there was also the what this in Soviet terminology was the agro-industrial complex, which meant not only the collective farms, um, but also the the fertilizer businesses and the tractor factories that supplied them. Um, You could probably identify a couple of other industrial groups that were quite powerful, but these three really stood out to me, um, not only in my reading of Soviet politics in general, but also in the Politburo papers. They stand out as being regularly cited as, as victims of Gorbachev's reforms. This is just an odd thing to wrap your head around because it's a state-planned economy and Gorbachev is the head of the state. So um, how how, do, how does it come about that there are these other centers of power uh, that are able to push back so effectively against uh, the supposed number one in charge? Well, even in the days of Stalin's personal dictatorship, you know, historians have found uh, evidence of, of places where Stalin wasn't always able or confident that he could push through decisions against the will of, of other top Soviet leaders. And especially by the time of Brezhnev and then Gorbachev, uh, the general secretary was certainly the most important person in the Soviet Union, but, but far from an absolute leader. And so he had to negotiate with other Politburo leaders and other power centers within the party. And what's interesting 
interesting about the Politburo by this point is that because of the policy of stability of the cadres and because of the uh, importance of these industrial lobbies in the Soviet Communist Party, when you look at the Politburo in Gorbachev's time period, it was made up of people who in many cases had come up through the industries that Gorbachev was trying to reform. Uh, so the agro-industrial complex, almost everyone uh, served in it or has some sort of tie to it, uh, who is a top leader of the Soviet Communist Party. Similarly, the gas and oil industries were also enormously influential within the party. And so it was impossible to push decisions through the Politburo without taking into account these various interest groups. I love this line you have. Although only 3,500 people worked in the State Planning Commission's headquarters, the lunch cafeteria regularly served 6,000. The 2,500 guests in daily attendance did not come for the borscht. They came to lobby planning officials for more handouts for next year's budget. And the thing that I was I was surprised to find, but obviously shouldn't have been in hindsight, was that lobbying worked roughly similarly in the Soviet Union as it did in the United States, that businesses needed to get uh, certain things from the government. And especially in a planned economy, you better make sure you have good connections. Otherwise, you don't get the capital allocations that you need to persist. Yeah, the, the, the only business moats are government relations. Exactly, exactly. So now turning to the military, this was a life and death third rail for Gorbachev. That's absolutely right. And the, the first thing that you need to understand about the military is that it was extraordinarily large in terms of its role in the Soviet political system and the Soviet economy. There's many different ways you can estimate the, the amount of military spending as a share of Soviet GDP, Many people say 10, 15, 20 percent. Uh, it really depends on how you estimate Soviet GDP. But however you measure it, it was far larger as a share of the Soviet economy than, for example, the military was as a share of the U.S. economy. Um, so that, that's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, the military had won the war. World War II was the defining experience of Soviet politics. Everyone in Gorbachev's generation and the generation older than him saw World War II as the most important experience of Soviet politics. And because of uh, the experience of the war, everyone believed that the Soviet military needed to be kept at a, a top-notch um, level. And, and this enabled them to get almost whatever spending they demanded. There's a great anecdote that Gorbachev has when he was not not the Soviet general secretary, but a, a top leader in the Politburo, and he asks to see the military budget. And the general secretary at the time laughs him off, saying, of course you can't see the military budget. And this was one of the top you know, dozen or so people <laughs> in, in the Soviet Communist Party. Um, but the, the level of secrecy was such uh, that it was simply impossible to touch the military. Uh, and he was also worried about uh, potential coup attempts if he, if he went too fast on this question. Indeed. And especially by the time he got to 1989, 1990, um, the, the risk of a coup was, was actually quite real. He was open about this. The Soviet press was somewhat openly writing about the prospect of a coup. And, and as Soviet leaders looked towards Eastern Europe, watching uh, various uh, dictators fall to protest movements, but also looking towards China and Tiananmen, um, the prospect of, of the military playing a role in politics seemed not just something theoretical, but something that could be quite real. Sure. So let's um, let's now maybe take a take a turn and look south of where Gorbachev was sitting to China. So you know it's it's ironic and interesting that whereas the the USSR seemed to have this more public harder split with Stalin, um, but ultimately had a much harder time getting away from his central economic policies. Well, on the other hand, Mao was never really thrown under the bus, but the CCP was able to make this much more abrupt hard right turn. Maybe to kick off this conversation, paint the scene of Gorbachev visiting Tiananmen um, and someone holding up a sign saying, we salute the 
ambassador of democracy. Um, so what was what was going on there in that meeting and, and, and more generally in the context of uh, uh, Soviet-Chinese relations? Well, Soviet-Chinese relations had been uh, extraordinarily bad for the previous uh, 20 years before Gorbachev's visit. The two countries fought a small war in 1969, um, and Gorbachev was the, the first Soviet leader to visit um, Beijing since that point. So the, the, the first point of the meeting was actually just to establish diplomatic relations. Um, but it, it turned out that both for the Chinese and for Gorbachev, uh, it, it ended up being about much more than that, because in both countries, there was a, a very sharp debate at the time as to what uh, reform socialism might look like. Uh, and it turned out that much to Gorbachev's surprise, I think, and also I think to the surprise of many Chinese leaders, that what Gorbachev represented in Soviet politics was also a, a strain of debate in Chinese politics affiliated with, you might say, Zhao Ziyang or Hu Yabang, the, the sort of more reform-aligned leaders in China. And so when Gorbachev came to Beijing, he was expecting to do nothing at all uh, with with domestic politics. He had no real interest in it, uh, in Chinese domestic politics. But because there were already protesters massed on Tiananmen Square, it was something that he couldn't avoid. The Chinese actually had to uh, revamp their welcome procedures. They forgot to roll out the red carpet for Gorbachev uh, when he arrived because they were actually consumed more with the protest than they were with welcoming him. So so another detour to, to present day. I just saw a tweet someone comparing uh, Hong Kong 2019 to Hungary 1956. Any any interesting lessons we could uh, take from the Soviet experience of, of restive regions to um, to what uh, Beijing is facing today? Well, I think it would depend which uh, which which Soviet leader you would ask. Um, the the ambassador to Hungary in 1956 was Andropov, who later become general secretary. And the lesson that he drew was that repression works. Uh, and indeed, by by his definitions, uh, the Soviet repression of the 1956 uh, Hungarian um, uprising did basically work until the 1980s. Gorbachev, of course, rejected that view because he had a different definition of what worked. Uh, his goal wasn't only to maintain the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe, but also to establish a more stable relationship between the populaces of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And he argued that the the policy of military occupation just wasn't sustainable, not in practical terms, it, certainly sustainable in military terms and economic terms, but it was too deleterious to Soviet relations with, with Eastern Europe and with Western Europe to maintain, and it didn't provide any benefits. And so that's actually why Gorbachev began rolling out of Eastern Europe was because he thought it just wasn't worth it anymore to, to stick around and have to bear the cost of military occupation. Which which was much higher on a relative basis um, compared to dealing with uh, Hong Kong, I would imagine. Indeed. And it doesn't seem like she is, is of Gorbachev's mindset when it comes to the, the benefits of, of Hong Kong versus the benefits of Hungary. So let's turn now to um, this idea that we talked about at the top of the, the Soviet system trying to learn from uh, uh, from Deng and the and the reform and opening experience. Um, maybe let's start with this guy, Borlotsky, who was uh, traveling around China and ended up writing a, a big report on all the interesting stuff he was seeing in a supposedly communist uh, communist uh, or in a supposedly socialist economy? Sure. Well, there were a number of uh, intellectuals like Berlatsky um, who had been relatively influential as, as sort of junior advisors under Khrushchev, who saw in Khrushchev a, a sort of more liberal version of, of Soviet communism, and then who had fallen out of favor under the conservative term that began with Brezhnev and um, and then continued under his successors. And then when Gorbachev uh, came to power, many of these, uh, this kind of 1960s generation of Soviet thinkers were, were brought back with Gorbachev 
Gorbachev and began to uh, be able to implement some of their ideas. And, and Berlatsky, like uh, many of this generation, was constantly looking for other models of socialism that might be less violent than Stalin, but nonetheless applicable to the Soviet Union. Um, and what's interesting about uh, Burlatsky is that he spent much of the 70s writing a very angry screeds about Mao Zedong being a horrible dictator, uh, a, a hopeless tyrant. Um, and, and he wrote these books not because he had any interest in China, really, but because uh, it was tough to criticize Stalin under Brezhnev, but you could criticize Mao all you wanted. And so Berlatsky wrote a series of pamphlets and books saying that Mao was terrible, he was a tyrant, and everyone knew this was really a book about Stalin. You could just kind of uh, take out Mao, put in Stalin, and you'd get the gist of Berlatsky's analysis. But over the course of his, his writing about China in the 70s into the early 80s, uh, he, he learned a bit about China and, and realized that actually by the time you get to the late 1970s, things were in fact changing in China, that the, the Mao that he had uh, seen as just a stand-in for Stalin uh, had passed from the scene, and, and there was a, a, a new generation or an old generation that in some cases had come back and was implementing quite different policies. And so people like Berlatsky in the late 70s and especially the early 80s, they come to realize that whatever socialism had meant in China under Mao, it meant something very different under Deng. And as they grasped for methods of, of more humane socialism in the Soviet Union, they, they began to ask whether what China was doing might have lessons uh, for what they wanted to implement at home. That's a really interesting thing with, with these Soviet uh, researchers who were writing about Mao as this like kind of crypto way to criticize the government. Um, was there sort of a, a filtration mechanism where like if this wasn't a thing people were doing, you wouldn't, you would have had more um, academics writing about China China's uh, opening reform in reform negatively, but the sort of academics who were interested in East Asia in the first place were already the relatively more open-minded ones. I think that's right. You, you did certainly have a an apparatus of, of scholars and analysts whose job it was to write about Chinese politics. But because they were tasked by the government, both with analyzing Chinese politics and with writing propaganda screeds against Mao, I think they had a harder time seeing China's changes in an objective fashion compared to those who didn't really care at all about China, like Berlatsky, but were just interested in, in criticizing Stalin. Um, but what's interesting, I think, is even as you get to the, the early 1980s, so quite early in the Chinese uh, reform process, even the most conservative anti-Chinese analysts of Chinese politics in the Soviet Union had to admit that things were different, that the Mao era was over, the Cultural Revolution was over, and Deng was doing something substantially new. So interestingly, you know, you know, we have uh, we have the Soviet Union learning from from China, but also China, it seems, was inspired by by Lenin's uh, new economic policy when he tried to get the uh, the Soviet economy back on track. Yeah, that's right. And there were a series of debates, I think, in in China and in the Soviet Union about how to interpret the other country and how to use that experience. So in, in China, there was a period of learning from the Soviet Union in the 1950s, right after the revolution, then that fell out of fashion during the Sino-Soviet split. And, and Deng picked that back up uh, to a certain extent in the late 1970s, but looked not towards the Stalin era of industrialization, but actually towards Lenin and the new economic policy in the 1920s. And, and the new economic policy was pushed forward by Lenin after the revolution. And the goal was to give space to private enterprises uh, in the countryside, give space to farmers to operate without central party control. And this worked quite well in, in the Soviet Union in the 1920s. It provided for agricultural recovery after the revolution. And Deng saw this and said, I wonder if we can try something at home in China and we can use Lenin to justify it. Because you always need to uh, you know, cite past precedent um, when, when working in a communist society. Indeed, there was this, this I, f I forget the exact number, but there was a, a quote from Marx. Seven. The, seven. The, the, the Chinese found that uh, Marx said any, any enterprise with fewer than seven people wasn't really a capitalist enterprise. So 
they could get away with capitalism as long as it was small businesses. Yeah. So so let's let's come now to uh, some specific policy changes aside from the uh, the big fiscal stuff that Gorbachev tried to do. You write that um you know Mao found this Dung found this like obscure quote and therefore let everyone. Uh, hire make companies of seven people or less, um, which is so great because it just sounds like this like communist office of legal counsel in the Justice Department who like provides cover for whatever you want to do. But Gorbachev uh, really had a hard time pushing these sorts of things through. So maybe let's start by touching on legal this idea of legalizing work in the first place. Yeah, so legalizing work was was quite complicated because of course uh, work in a capitalist system according to Soviet thinking, was exploitation. And so you didn't want to have exploitation <laughs> in uh, the Soviet Union, but of course you did want people to be to working. So it, it was a complicated uh, thing to balance. In the Soviet Union, there was always informal work that people didn't report or that local officials turned a blind eye to, but Gorbachev wanted to make it legal to uh, work for somebody else um, outside of a state-organized process. And, and so he, he tried to push through legal changes to make work um, legal. Uh, and of course, this was problematic in an ideological sense from the the more conservative or traditionally Marxist elements of the Communist Party who saw this as a step towards capitalism. This was reversing the gains of the revolution. But it was also complicated because the the planners and the top bureaucrats who had been used to planning everything and who believed that any sort of non-planned activity threatened their control of the economy, they saw this as also something that would undermine central control. And so there was also a lot of reticence from the planning bureaucracy to any sort of changes that gave more uh, more decision-making towards individuals. You know, you have this great quote from a Paul Burrow speech where Gorbachev is arguing, we can't simply declare individual activity always parasitical. How many decisions have we taken on laws on parasitism, on pilferers, on illegal immigrant workers? And not one of these decisions is carried out. Not one problem is solved. If we close everything off, then we create unbelievable difficulties. Is Glassplan thinking about this? Where will people get materials? This is real life. I mean, I feel bad for the guy making this, uh, having to make these uh, these arguments that markets are actually a useful thing. <laughs> well, and and you can just imagine trying to to sell the uh, you know that work is a good idea, that markets are are a good idea to people who had come up through the revolution, who had been trained in Marxism-Leninism since they since their childhood. I mean, it was a real mental shift for, for many Soviet leaders, and, and many really just failed to make the shift. You know, when we're going to talk about uh, agricultural reform left and, uh, next, but one of the pushbacks he got was uh, someone saying that, quote, collective farms provided for the country's home front during the war. It is not correct to claim that we drove enormous funds into agriculture in vain. Collective farms and state farms are a main road of socialism. You know, when you're going up against the great patriotic war and the memory of the sacrifices of your forefathers. It's a it's a tough road to hope. Absolutely, especially when in, in the case of collective farming, the cost of collectivization was so enormous that it was only justifiable if you believe that the benefits were even more enormous. And so the moment you begin chipping away at the benefits of collectivization, then the whole Soviet system begins to look a lot less legitimate. And so Gorbachev wasn't only questioning uh, you know, economic policies at the margin. He was really questioning the, the core political claims of the Soviet Union. Oh, wait, those tens of millions of people we starved actually you know, could, could be living now. Uh, exactly. A, a, a tough thing to wrap your head around. Absolutely. So um, coming to the particulars of farming reform, what was Gorbachev trying to do and why couldn't he get there? So first, the system of, of farming in the Soviet Union at the time, it, farming was mostly um, done via collective farms, which were uh, groups of anywhere from a couple dozen 
dozen to several hundred um, workers working together on a farming enterprise. There were also state farms that were basically the same thing but owned by the state rather than ostensibly by the collective. There was also a bit of private farming, which generally meant people who on the weekend went to their dacha, their their home outside of the city, and grew tomatoes or potatoes or whatever it was on their plot. And, and that was generally possible to sell on private markets for market prices. But most produce was produced on these collective or state farms and was, was sold for, for centrally set prices. And these these farms were extraordinarily inefficient. Um, there's this great data on their fertilizer usage, their tractor usage, which was higher than uh, any other country in the world, but the output was far lower right. than any other country in the world. And so the inefficiency was just was just obvious to anyone who looked at it. But there were a great number of people who worked on these collective farms. So you couldn't just cast them off the farm, even though farms in general had far too many laborers. Uh, so there was a, an unemployment problem that would result if you tried to reform the farms. And because there were farms were seen as a mainstay of the socialist system, they had become immensely powerful in the Communist Party. And so any sort of reform to the farming system ran up against the bureaucracy that we spoke about earlier. And what Gorbachev wanted to do was basically make farming more flexible to allow for um, individual incentives in farming. So rather than your whole collective getting incentivized to produce more efficiently, having individual farmers controlling their own plots of land, and to uh, and to provide stronger incentives for farms to use things like, fact, like, like tractors and like fertilizer more efficiently. Um, but all of this confronted the same barriers we spoke about earlier, the, the ideological barrier and also the interest group barrier. And so Gorbachev really struggled to get any sort of farming changes through, despite that he was talking about this as early as 1985 and 1986. So coming to foreign investment, why couldn't the USSR get this right like China did? After all, like China, it had a very wealthy and educated class abroad who just a handful of years later would be able to set up very successful businesses in the former USSR, just like the Taiwanese and other ethnic Chinese expats could do on the mainland. Well, even today, the the Russian government is often flummoxed by its inability to attract foreign investment. And, and there's a lot of reasons for it, um, both today and in the Soviet period. But I think the number one is is actually structural, which is that China in, in 1978 or 1980 was an extraordinarily poor country. Labor was, for all practical purposes, free, um, given what prices international firms were used to paying. Whereas in the Soviet Union, that wasn't the case. It was a middle-income country. Um, and so a lot of the things that were uh, very efficient to produce in a country like China, textiles, for example, were always going to be too expensive to produce in the Soviet Union. So there was this big structural dilemma that the Soviet Union had gotten too far ahead to take advantage of the types of low-wage activities that first sparked uh, foreign investment into China and other countries in Southeast Asia. But to add on top of that, during the Gorbachev period, you had immense institutional change coupled with ideological rigidity. So the Soviet Union was a socialist state all the way until 1991, and this made it not easy to attract foreign investors when on the one hand you had Gorbachev trying to seem like he was pro-business, and on the other hand you had other top Soviet leaders uh, you know, regularly quoting Marx and Lenin. That was complicated for foreign investors to understand. But at the same time, also the laws were changing on a regular basis too. It wasn't clear whether foreign investment would be legal next year, if it was legal this year, uh, and local authorities were often quite skeptical of it as well. So if you were a foreign business looking for somewhere to set up a textile factory, the Soviet Union wasn't it. There were a couple of places where you might think the Soviet Union might have a comparative advantage, um, slightly more skilled labor. 
But the reality was these were few and far between, and that the types of foreign trade that created what we what we now consider globalization, the the electronics assembly, the textiles, furniture, those all required at the outset pretty low wage labor, which the Soviet Union never had in a large capacity. So Chris, could you expand a little bit on this idea of this sort of like middle income communist trap uh, where uh, the Soviet Union being a little further on from an economic development perspective ended up having a harder time than than the Chinese did when it came to reform? Yeah, so the middle income trap, I think, existed in two ways. One was what we were talking about earlier, the inability of the Soviet Union to attract foreign investment in a substantial scale. It wasn't able to start climbing up the ladder at a, at a low level and so ended up not climbing up the ladder at all. Um, but the, the second facet of those more of a political economy side, which is that the more industries that you have developed, the more interest groups there are to cut through. And because China was starting from a, a position of really abject poverty in the mid-1970s, there was almost no one who was defending the old way from a perspective of economic interest. There were people who were ideologically committed to Maoism, but there weren't many people saying, the old system worked pretty well for me, I don't want to change it. So when you look at your average Chinese peasant, uh, they weren't advocating for keeping the system as it was. They wanted change. Whereas if you look at your average Soviet collective farmer, the system had worked relatively well for them. They had stable incomes. They weren't wealthy by any means, but they had been poorer in the past. And so change was as much a risk as it was an opportunity. Sure. You know, a few, a few other things that stuck out to me reading your book um, of kind of advantages Deng had were, um, of, of course, that revolutionary credibility. You know, he was there from the beginning. Um, he also had much more control over the military and was able to cut the budget right as he shows up um, because he realized that the most important thing was not uh, you know, fighting the Americans or the Soviets, but getting the economy in order. Um, you write this idea of Chinese-style reform without Chinese-style discipline. Um, so that discipline aspect was a big part of Gorbachev failed to, um, uh, failed to get at. Yeah, and, and he had no realistic way of providing for discipline because the group that he most needed to discipline was the military. Uh, you know, discipline works. You can impose economic reforms from the point of a gun if you're trying to get other people, other parts of society, consumers, labor unions, etc., to accept lower wages. But you, it's hard to force the military to turn its guns on itself and to cut its own salary. Uh, and that's what Gorbachev yeah. would have had to do. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe maybe killing generals is hard. But when I'm reading your book and I hear him arguing in these meetings, half the time I'm thinking, like, why can't this guy leak embarrassing stories, exile folks, um, you know, these idiotic uh, Politburo, uh, you know, economy, like, you know, agricultural policymakers or whatever. What was was it? A, was it a ideological thing of him just deciding this is this isn't how the game was played anymore? Or was it just something that he knew would backfire too quickly to to go a more uh, a more aggressive route. I, th- I think there's an argument that Gorbachev was a, a bit too idealistic in in politics or perhaps a bit too naive to um, fully play power politics vis-a-vis his opponents domestically. But I also think that even if you'd had the most Machiavellian leader in his shoes, it's dif- it's really difficult to imagine uh, the types of reforms that would have been necessary being pushed through. You, you can play this um, counterfactual game with Andropov, who was a Soviet leader earlier in the 1980s, who had been a head of the KGB, who had been the Soviet ambassador, as I mentioned, in Hungary in 1956. Uh, he had credibility with the security services, uh, which was the most important group to have credibility with. But many people in today's Russia like to uh, like to imagine what things would have been like had Andropov lived longer. Would there have been the types of reforms that could have provided for uh, a reinvigoration of the Soviet economy? And, and I find that implausible um, just because it's still extraordinarily difficult to imagine 
significant budget cuts to the military, uh, significant reductions of uh, the military's role in society, uh, and the types of reforms that the security services, the military, et cetera, would have found ideologically untenable. So I, I don't well, buy the thesis know, that a more a kind of a, a, stronger, a stronger kind of hand at the tiller could have been a, a better economic outcome. Well, I mean, there, there, there is an argument to be made that Putin figured out a way to do this, albeit on a smaller scale, the whole like, you know, shaji uh, xiaho, you kill the chicken to scare the monkey, where he, you know, picked a handful of... Uh, oligarchs who weren't um who weren't dancing to his tune and 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 sent the message to the rest of the scene um but i guess you'd argue that the amount that he had to change from a from a policy perspective wasn't nearly at the level of what uh andropov or uh gorbachev needed to do to execute um you know a full uh, a full turn of the soviet economic system well and i'd say that the the direction is different so under andropov and in the soviet period the, the people who were in power were the security services, and economic efficiency required that their influence be reduced. Whereas when Putin came to power, the security services had been out of power for a decade. When they began their efforts to discipline the oligarchs, for example, that was both disciplining the oligarchs, but that was also bringing themselves back to power. So it's easy to, to mobilize the security services when it's in their interest to be mobilized. Uh, but it's much harder in the Soviet case where the goal was to restrict their ability to influence things. Excuse me, I got the Cheng Yu wrong. It's Shaji Jingho. Anyway, so so let's come back to the, uh, uh, the the sort of crisis point for the Soviet system. So how do we get to this big inflation um, inflation run up? Well, in a, a planned economy where you have state controlled prices, um, prices only move when the government wants to move them. And the Soviet Union had learned um, in its post-war experience that raising prices was extraordinarily unpopular. There was a famous uh, revolt um, that had happened earlier on in the, the post-war era when the Soviet Union tried to raise food prices, uh, and Soviet leaders were just deeply afraid of any price increases. So price increases were off the table, but the monetary supply was increasing under Gorbachev because of this new wave of capital investment and this new wave of wage increases. And so you had the monetary base growing, prices stable. Uh, and so normally this would, in a, or normally, in a capitalist economy, this would result in inflation when the monetary base grows. Uh, but inflation wasn't possible in the Soviet Union because the government didn't want to increase prices. And so the result was shortages. It was simply no longer efficient for anyone to produce anymore. And so everyone stopped producing, stopped supplying. And you get to the point in 1990, 1991, uh, where shelves were empty and people were standing in line even for bread and for milk. And this, this was substantively different than earlier in the Soviet experience. There were always long wait times, for example, if you wanted to buy a new car in the Soviet Union. Um, but for most of the post-war period, with very few exceptions, the, the daily necessities were available without any sort of lines or waiting. And that changed in 1990, 1991, and created a real crisis, not only in economic terms, but also in social and political terms. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the analogies are to, to Venezuela today, but also, you know, uh, Dung in the in the mid to late 80s had to deal with inflation as well. That's right. And, and inflation was in some ways uh, one of the causes of the discontent that eventually led to uh, protests around Tiananmen, too. So there's a, another connection between the Soviet and the Chinese experiences. So another thing that's happening as we get to, to 89, 90 and 91 is is appropriation, mass appropriation of state owned um uh, state-owned materials. So what is the actual mechanism here? Do people just show up and say, like, this is mine now, everyone works for me? Well, as you have the law changing, as private ownership becomes possible in certain circumstances and as the scope of private ownership expands, um, everyone begins to realize that it would be nice to own things and that the legal basis for owning things is 
often vague, unclear, poorly enforced. So if, if you can grab something, you will likely become the de facto and, and eventually the legal owner. Um, and uh, on top of that, because of the surge of inflation and because of the conflicts of the Communist Party, legal authority is beginning to fall apart. So even if your appropriation of property is illegal, there's really no one there to enforce it. And so in 1990, 1991, everyone begins grabbing control of whatever they can. Um, and so if you're an average person, you know, there's there's not that much to grab control over. But if you're the 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 boss of a big enterprise and you can grab control of a big steel factory, for example, well, that, that's a pretty valuable asset. And so the the leaders of the, the Soviet uh, era enterprises began trying to grab control for themselves and their colleagues of the great enterprises that made up Soviet industry. And, and to a large extent, they succeeded so that by the early 1990s, um, much of Soviet industry was in de facto private hands and largely not via uh, legal privatization processes, but simply because people had grabbed control of it in the final days of the Soviet Union and it wasn't possible to wrest it out of their hands. So current uh, CCP interpretation of the, of the actual dissolution of the Soviet, uh, of the Soviet empire, uh, you quote Xi saying, all it took was one quiet word from Gorbachev to declare the dissolution of the Soviet Communist Party and a great party was gone. In the end, nobody was a real man. Nobody came out to resist. So what, what's your take on this interpretation? And how would you uh, maybe correct it in line with uh, in line with your research? In some sense, it's it's absolutely correct um, that had Gorbachev not begun his economic and political reforms, the Soviet Union would have persisted another decade or two. I, I think that's a that's a reasonable interpretation. What she misses, I think, is that in order to have kept things as they were politically economic change would have been very difficult and, and probably impossible. And, and so the, the CCP interpretation, which is also the interpretation of many in Russia today, is that it's plausible to have had a, a strong man reform the economy but keep the party and the state as they were. And in my research, that just seems extraordinarily implausible precisely because the key reforms were limiting the powers of the party and the powers of the security apparatus. So in some ways, the, the Xi Jinping view is the sort of have your cake and eat it too version. And the reality is that the history doesn't really support uh, that counterfactual. Let's now come to uh, the post-war situation in Russia. So you mentioned earlier this Mansur Olson concept. Uh, we're going to bring a new one in, government by bandits. So explain this concept and how did uh, Putin roll it out uh, while centralizing power? Well, after the Soviet Union collapsed in, in Russia and in all the successor states of the Soviet Union, uh, governance was extraordinarily disorganized. It was decentralized. It was often difficult to differentiate between your local mafia and your local city council because both were trying to extract bribes or, or steal from you. And so everyone kind of uh, interpreted the government and the mafias as, as different types of bandits. And when Putin came to power, he said essentially that he was going to create a new social contract with society, not that he was going to be any less corrupt per se, nor that his friends wouldn't become billionaires, but that there was going to be one government. It was going to be centralized. It was going to be organized. Uh, and it was going to be controlled from, from Moscow. Uh, and, and so there is this, uh, as you mentioned, this concept in political science of, of roving bandits versus stationary bandits. And the thesis is that if you have a roving bandit, they're going to try to um, not only steal your eggs, but also kill your chicken. Whereas if you have a stationary bandit, they'll have some sort of incentive to have your chicken have eggs every single year. So they might not kill your chicken. They'll just take a couple of eggs. And in the long run, they'll they'll get more eggs from that sort of strategy. And that's, that's essentially what Putin adopted in his first 
decade in office, he still took eggs, partially via the tax system, partially via other more corrupt methods. But uh, he, he did stabilize governance in a way that was um, very supportive of growth in his, his first decade in office. And this, this wasn't because he was a, a particularly wise economic reformer per se, although his bureaucrats did push through some reforms, but broadly just because he provided stable governance uh, in a country that had, had not had stable governance for over a decade. It just occurred to me that the, the sort of uh, government by bandits analogy is best, uh, perhaps best illustrated by the uh, Total War series uh, decisions. When you conquer a city, you can either burn it to the ground and then you get more money up front, but the city is in ruins or you can choose to occupy it. And then it sort of like lowers a level, but you can still keep going. Total War Three Kingdoms, uh, recommend it for all those listeners out there. The the changing economic policy, uh, you know, we go from 26 tax collectors killed in 1996 alone uh, to at one point Luke Oil sending a ton of cash without even being asked, um, which is which is a real accomplishment, I think, for the Putin regime. What analogies and, and differences do you see between the, the sort of system that Putin uh, was able to cook up and what currently makes the uh, makes the Chinese economy run? Well, the Russian government would be delighted to hear that you think there are any similarities between the two. Um, <laughs> they, they love the idea that they're similar to Chinese-style governance. And there's actually a lot of different ways in which they're, they're trying to emulate what they think China has done well. The big difference is that under Putin, there was one big growth spurt uh, in the, f- the first couple of years after Putin took power, and that was a result of um, the, the stabilization that we discussed, also a result of oil price increases. But since then, it's been basically stagnant. Since 2008, there's been hardly any economic growth, and, and that's that's been kind of the, the status quo. Whereas in China, it does seem like it's much more dependent on growth to have political stability. At least that's certainly what the CCP thinks. They, they're they afraid of a, a slowdown lest it destabilize the political system. But the, the methods of, of creating growth were also quite different. The Russian government has never really had a a serious strategy to create growth other than just to create a, a sort of stable environment, which which worked in the 2000s and hasn't worked very well since then. Um, whereas in China, the local government is all about growth. People are assessed based on GDP growth in their city or in their provinces. Uh, local government officials are deeply involved in the construction process and in building infrastructure, whereas Russian local leaders don't pay any attention to that at all. They're not assessed based on growth to any substantial degree. No one thinks that growth is particularly likely or plausible beyond just 1% or 2% a year. So it's, it's not nearly as substantial a portion of the Russian political system as it is uh, central to the Chinese political system. Can you talk a little bit about the um, the Putin social contract and um, uh, how it sort of constrains his his economic operating space? Well, it's interesting because there's an argument actually right now that the, the Russian social contract is changing. Um, traditionally, the view for the first 15 years that Putin was in power, and this is a view that I held as well, is that Putin uh, survived thanks to his ability to uh, satisfy most voters, but really to buy off older voters. And, and he regularly won large majorities of voters over the age of 55. And he did so by massively increasing their pensions. Uh, so pensions grew uh, regularly at double-digit rates in the 2000s. They've only fallen, I believe it's two years uh, in the, the 20 years he's been in power. So really an impressive record when it comes to pension spending. But what's interesting is last year, Putin pushed through a, a pretty tough pension reform that will uh, reduce pension payouts. And there's been no obvious destabilization of the political system since then. His approval ratings have fallen a bit, but it hasn't been drastic. So I, I think political scientists looking at the the Putin system are beginning to question the extent to which uh, this social spending was crucial to political stability. Maybe we just haven't seen the effect yet, but it's, it does seem like he's pulled off a 
pretty substantial cut to social spending without any sort of real hit to his popularity, um, which will be interesting if, if they try to do similar uh, cuts to social spending like that in the future, whether that's something that is generalizable and they can continue cutting without any sort of cost. What's the state of Putin-C relations and, and, and your general take on, on the way the sort of Russia-U.S.-China triangle is, has, uh, has and will continue to evolve? I think Putin-Xi relations are extraordinarily good. Um, the, the two leaders, by all accounts, get along quite well. Uh, they get along well because they perceive that they have a shared rival in the United States. And I think in both countries, uh, there's a, a broad view among the elite that their biggest threat is the United States. And so whatever disagreements they have between themselves need to be managed with the goal of focusing on the, the threat from Washington as they perceive it. A among the, the community of, of Russia watchers, there's a lot of people who have expected a uh, a shift in Russia towards fearing China's rise, people looking back towards the Sino-Soviet split, and you can look at many previous examples before then. Um, that certainly hasn't happened yet, even as China's expanded its influence in parts of the former Russian empire, which many Russians see as Russia's traditional sphere of influence, even as China's deployed forces in Tajikistan, which three decades ago was part of the Soviet Union. Uh, Russia's been very, very quiet and willing to accept uh, China's growing influence on the grounds that it desperately needs China in its confrontation with the West, and more importantly, that it desperately needs Sino-American confrontation to sustain Russia's position in Europe. You know, Russia's global position today is one of relative weakness compared to the other two great powers, and so only when the other two great powers, the U.S. and China, are focused on each other can Russia have hope for uh, space to act independently uh, of, of agreement with the United States. Coming back to sort of uh, a research question, we've been talking about very big issues, and, and you are a very young scholar. Um, a lot of a lot of dissertations nowadays are on much narrower questions than the fall of the Soviet uh, the Soviet Union. Do you have any advice for PhD candidates out there considering biting something off uh, that's relatively bigger than than maybe what their advisor initially uh, tells them to uh, to go into? Well, I, I guess what I was uh, intrigued to find or surprised to find over the course of my research was the extent to which you can take a a relatively narrow topic, like what did the Soviet Union think about Deng Xiaoping? That's that's a bite-sized topic, but connect it to much bigger issues like the collapse of the Soviet Union or questions of what went right in, in Deng Xiaoping's China. Um, and it seems like that, that linkage between the, the narrow topic and, and the broader questions is what you can do to turn a sort of dissertation or a first book into into something that engages with broader themes. But I think it's only only after I began the, the research and began digging into Soviet archives in a relatively narrow piece of history and a relatively narrow set of archives that I was able to realize what the connections were to the broader themes. I, I didn't go in expecting to explain the collapse of the Soviet Union per se. Well, well, well some do and never get there. So, so, so hats <laughs> off, Chris. Chris Miller, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thank you. It's been a fun discussion. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason McRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SupChina. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Change
下的障碍。一晃来晃去怎么办？你选择头疼，这里好星星，这台星油门，绿王的星移，耀眼的星星，时尚的记忆，搭配什么看我的心情？你可以亲吻我的戒指，但不能碰我皇冠。Oh, my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over, and we're out of food. Great! Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get twenty dollars off your first order using the code Prepared Twenty. Now, the only thing to worry about is. Dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order thirty-five dollars. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.